The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, slight change to the reading. Res- uh, Matthew chapter 28. We'll sing just... Uh, we'll. Huh. It's been a long week. Who knows what's going to come out today? Hopefully the truth. Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 1 to 10, verses 1 to 10, and we'll be using this text as a springboard to investigate what Scripture tells us about the theology and significance of the resurrection of Christ. Let's hear the word, then, of our God. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter now your word, we confess our absolute need upon you in speaking and in hearing, in profiting from this word. Bless it unto us, Lord God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight and profitable in our lives. If we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, those of you who were here last week will have seen one kind of sermon on the resurrection. We preached through verses 1 to 15 consecutively. Uh, This week, you're going to hear a topical sermon. It's a different style of sermon. It's where we use one text as a springboard to investigate Scripture's witness uh, and testimony concerning a certain subject. That matter today is the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection from the dead. And as we'll see in our search of Scripture this morning, the theological and practical significance of the resurrection is far-reaching in the lives of God's children, far-reaching indeed, so much so that we can't begin to capture the entirety of what Scripture says about the resurrection. We have four points before us today. I left three at home on my desk in my study, thinking that that would be too much for the sermon. Four is probably too much as it is, but we'll see how we go. Four points of profound significance and impact to the Christian and to the non-Christian 
regarding the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see the first of all that the resurrection creates for us a new holy day of worship, a day of worship. Secondly, we'll see that the resurrection is pivotal in breaking the power of sin in our lives. Thirdly, we'll see that the resurrection is necessary in our justification before God. And fourth, we'll see the resurrection is pivotal in the vindication of Jesus as Son of God. A new day of worship, breaking the power of sin in our lives, justification, and the vindication of our Lord Jesus Christ— Huge matters before us, and we're just scratching the surface. Learn richly of the resurrection, friends. Not just in the next 30 minutes, but in the rest of your life. Learn of Christ. Learn of his resurrection and all it means for you. That's what we seek to do today. We'll see firstly that the resurrection brings to us a new day of worship. And I'll freely concede we could preach multiple sermons on each of my points today. A new day of worship. There's a hint of that in the very first verse of Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, we see implicit there an idea that something radical and different has happened on this day. Well, first of all, we know it's the resurrection day. Early that morning, we read that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary have gone to the tomb, and there they find the tomb empty. Christ has been already raised from the dead on that day. What day is it? It's the first day of the week. The first day of the week, that is our Sunday. The Jewish Sabbath was Friday night to Saturday night, so all of Saturday, more or less. On the first day, not the Jewish Sabbath, a new day, Jesus rises from the dead. And we see in the rest of the New Testament that that idea of Jesus being raised on that day has new significance for the Christian and the Christian church. Take, for example, John chapter 20, verse 19. We read there on the evening of the first day of the week, what happens? Jesus appears to them after his resurrection. Jesus appeared to them again on a resurrection Sunday. We move swiftly into the book of Acts, chapter 2 and verse 42. We see the disciples there of the early church devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. In other words, it's worship. That's what it means, because we know that by Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We learn on that day, the first day of the week, the same language, the same Greek as in Matthew 28, 1, as in John 20, they're there worshiping God. On the first day of the week, they're gathered to break bread uh, and, and to worship. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul says, On the first day of the week, set aside something to take up for the offering or the collection. What are we seeing? We're seeing that the day of worship somehow has changed from the Jewish Old Covenant Sabbath, Saturday, to the day after, the day when Jesus was raised from the dead. And we know that day, 
has a special name for it. We, we read of it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. John says that he received the apocalypse, the whole of the book of Revelation, on what day? It says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. By the time John received the book of Revelation, it happened on the Sunday, Lord's day, the day of worship had become known as the Lord's day. It's clear for the early church, there's, there's a transitionary time, Their worship was no longer on the Jewish Sabbath, the Old Covenant Sabbath, but on a new day, the New Covenant Sabbath, the Sunday, called the Lord's Day. It's interesting, friends, you will search the Scriptures in vain for an explicit command to change the day of worship. You just won't find one. It's simply not true that we need to derive all our theology from explicit commands of Scripture. We just don't do that. We don't do that with the doctrine of the Trinity. We don't do that with the doctrine of household or infant baptism. We don't do it with the doctrine of the Sabbath. There's no explicit command. There's even no explanation for it in terms of a piece of writing where Paul or Peter sets out uh, the case for the change of day. It's just not there. It happens because the early church under the authority of the apostles, remember in Ephesians 2, they're called the foundation of the church with Christ being the cornerstone. The apostles under the inspiration of the Spirit, ministering on behalf of Christ, saw the day of resurrection as bringing a profound change to Christian worship not least the day upon which worship takes place. It is their example laid down for us in Scripture that causes us now to worship on Sunday, not Saturday. So why the change? What's the significance? Sunday is the day of resurrection. The first day of the week is the day of resurrection, a day of new beginnings, a day of new life. Indeed, it also casts our mind back to to Genesis 1, doesn't it? The first day of the week when what did God create? Light, and separated the light from the darkness. We know that imagery of light and darkness comes to the fore in Christ's person and work in his ministry. He is the light of the world. The darkness has not overcome him. And we can say more, friends. The darkness of the grave could not hold Christ, the light of the world. So this day is all about new beginnings, new life being wrought in us. The Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, is a new beginning. It is, friends, the first day of the week. And it's in Christ and in his resurrection that we see the creation concept, not just of light, but of rest being fulfilled. Rest. The Jewish practice of rest was highly regulated. I shouldn't say Jewish. I should say Old Covenant. That's important for us. Old Covenant uh, day of rest was highly legislated. I want to say, friends, that legislation remains in place for us, just in case you're wondering. Not the day, but the six days shall you labor, and on the seventh you shall rest. In it you shall do no work. That remains for us. But it's interesting, isn't it? The Jews would labor, the covenant people of of the old times would labor for six days, and then they'd have their day of rest. Six days shall you labor, and the seventh you shall rest. It's not so for us, is it? 
This is the first day of the week. We rest in here on this day, and then we go out and labor. Have you ever thought of that before? Not like the old covenant, the new gives us at the beginning of our week a day of rest in Christ, which equips us then to do what? To go out and serve. This, friends, is the pattern of the gospel. It's the pattern of our holy faith that God has delivered us, God has given us rest. Therefore, we go out and labor. Therefore, we go out and serve. We do not serve him in order that we might have rest. We have rest in him in order that we might serve him. And we know further than that, that rest in this life is not the ultimate rest to be had, friends. It is the rest of the life to come that Scripture, that Christ, that the Sabbath points us to. Today, friends, the market day of the soul, as the Puritans called it, is a picture of the new heavens and new earth itself, where we will have eternal rest in Christ, in the presence of Christ. That is to say, friends, the resurrection the resurrection day, the Lord's day, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath is a picture of what is to come in heaven. So friends, how do you think of your Lord's day? Perhaps I should say, how do we think of his Lord's day? It's not our Lord's day, it's his. What are we doing on this Lord's day? How are we preparing for this Lord's Day? Are you coming to church ready to hallow this day, this moment? Are we coming uh, into this room in light of the resurrection of our Savior? Or are we polluting this day by lack of preparation for it and by the things that we do on this day, contrary to the law of God, contrary to the principles of divine rest? Friends, do you yearn for the Lord's day? Do you delight in the Lord's day? We should, and we should rest in it. And that's spiritual rest preeminently. There's physical rest, but that's not really in view. It's preeminently spiritual rest in which we might delight, which we might recharge our spiritual batteries, which we might commune with the triune God and then go forth to serve to serve God and to serve each other. Yes, the resurrection produces for us a new day of worship. But the resurrection for us also provides us a break from the power of sin. The power of sin is broken. We see this in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is a very clear statement that the power of sin is broken in the Christian by what means? By the resurrection of Christ. A day of worship, and yes, we may enter that day of worship because the power of sin in each Christian here present today has been decisively broken. Romans chapter 6, the first four verses. Listen to Paul's question, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk with newness, in newness of life. Calvin, summarizing this passage, says, We being dead to ourselves may become new creatures. Paul says this is done how? By the resurrection of Christ. We have here the language of union with Christ. That is, the Christian by faith is inseparably bound to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ to us, so much so that what is true of him by degree becomes true of us. That's a staggering concept to get your head around. The benefits of Christ's death, he says, verse 3, are applied to us when we receive him by faith. We become united to him. We die to sin. But also the power of sin is broken in us, verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. A newness of life belongs to the Christian. As Christ was raised, we live in newness of life. The resurrection here for Paul is the clear connector to us walking in that newness of life, that break, decisive break with the power of sin. You see, the resurrection is Christ's new life. And that new life, friends, has been bequeathed to the Christian by the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, who dwells within each one of us. And that newness of life is transformational in our lives, transforms our minds, and ultimately will transform our own bodies, as we heard last week. But now, in the transformation of mind, it gives us an inclination towards holiness rather than towards sin. It turns our hearts and minds towards God rather than to self. That's what this newness of life does. You're going to be hearing of the whole armor of God tonight and in the next few weeks. Paul's going to speak of truth, of righteousness, of the gospel, of faith, and of peace. All means God uses in that continual transformation of our minds and our lives. Our growth in holiness is dependent upon those means, how God sanctifies us. I'm a page on my study wall in front of me, a quotation from Rosaria Butterfield. She says this, Know what is true. Let the inerrant living word of God commandeer your heart and mind and body. Know what is true. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has direct implications for you on a daily basis in your fight with sin. Know what is true. Let this truth commandeer your mind. Let it take possession. Let it take ownership of your heart. What is the truth? The power of sin has been broken in you, dear Christian. That's the truth. The power of sin has been broken in you. How? 
because you are united to Christ in his resurrection. Paul says it clearly. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. As he was granted new life physically, we are granted new life spiritually. Friends, sometimes it feels, as it not, that we are being defeated by sin. I suspect I'm not the only one who feels like that at times. But the truth is this. Sin has been broken in us. Christ's resurrection has broken the back of sin, such that it will never have dominion over the Christian ever again. Christ has won the victory. He has defeated sin. It might feel that you've been defeated. It's not true. There's always a way back to God. The resurrection of our Savior grants us newness of life. Repentance grants us to return unto God. Learn more of the resurrection of Christ and allow it in you to be the motivating power which allows you to put sin to death. Closely connected with the power of sin being broken is the doctrine of justification. Romans chapter 4 and verse 22 to 25. Our third point, the resurrection produces in us justification. We think, how does the resurrection produce justification? Well, Paul says it does. Listen to Romans 4 verse 22. He's speaking about Abraham. And the doctrine of justification, Abraham has been justified by faith. Paul says, verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Delivered up for our transgressions, raised for our justification. Paul's writing for our benefit, he says. Abraham was justified by faith. He says, so too are we justified by faith. But then he makes a clear connection not only between Christ's death and the forgiveness of sins, but Christ's resurrection and the doctrine of justification. Yes, it says he was delivered for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Jesus was raised so that we might be made righteous before God. Think on that for a moment. Christ was raised by God and raised righteous by God. Notice it says, first of all, he was raised. That means somebody else does the raising. At times in Scripture, we see the Father doing the raising. Other times we see the Spirit. Other times we see the power of Christ himself. It's one and the same. He was raised. God raised him from the dead in this passage. The Father raised him from the dead. We see that in many passages in Scripture. Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Because he was righteous. And that which is righteous cannot be bound by death and the grave. It's a remarkable truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Inherently righteous, though he took our sins, he himself was personally righteous. And righteousness cannot be held by death. 
the grave has no power over the righteous one. His righteous standing before God meant that death and the grave could not hold him. He was raised by God and he was raised as righteous by God. That's to say, friends, his resurrection is a demonstration that God accepted his work and God accepted his righteousness. That's how he was raised for our justification. Friends, this is a righteousness that could not be held by the grave. And it is a righteousness that is imputed to the children of God. Christ's righteousness. A righteousness that could not be held by the grave. A righteousness that ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of majesty. Dear Christian, here today, that is your righteousness. It's our righteousness. Which means we stand right before God. That we will not be held by the grave. That we will ascend to glory where Christ is. Oh, dear friends, what is it to know and to have this righteousness? Not having a righteousness of our own produced by things we do. What wonder it must be, it should be to each one of us this day that by the grace of God, we possess a righteousness that fulfills every last jot and tittle of the law of God. Paul says, for those who believe the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us, in you, dear sinner, in me, dear sinner. Jesus was raised for our justification. And finally, perhaps most fundamentally, we also learn here that the resurrection brings about the vindication of Christ as the Son of God. Romans again, and by the way, in a few weeks, we're starting to preach through Romans in the morning. So start reading, it's deep. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Did you hear that? The Son, the Eternal Son, according to the flesh of the line of David, yet by the Spirit and in power, he's raised from the dead and what? Declared to be the Son of God. The resurrection declares Jesus to be the Son of God. He's the son in verse 3, but he's also the son of David in verse 3. That's emphasizing his incarnation, isn't it? His divine nature, the son, also a descendant of David, truly human, God-man. 
But in verse 4, we say we see that he has been declared to be the Son of God. Paul's saying something very important about our Lord. He's not saying he's changed his identity. Not saying he's changed anything about him or he stopped being the Son. He's saying that in the resurrection of Christ, the fullness of Christ is seen like in no way before that in his life. Paul says Jesus in his resurrection is declared to be what he always was and what he always says he was. Be he, he was. The resurrection in some way more fully shows him to be who he is. He's declared the Son of God. The resurrection is a public declaration. I haven't got time to look at these verses, but if you're taking notes, write them down. Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. Acts 13, 33. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. Paul tells us, that in Acts, or in Acts 13 tells us, rather, that that's the fulfillment. The resurrection is the fulfillment of that idea in Psalm 2. Not to mention Hebrews 5, verse 5. The resurrection is the public declaration of Jesus Christ as Son of God. Christ is always the eternal Son. He always was. He always will be the eternal Son. But what happened in the incarnation? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, veiled the incarnate deity. His Godhead, his deity was veiled. So much so that many denied him. So veiled was his his divine person that in unbelief they refused to acknowledge who he was. But in the resurrection, there will be no doubting who the Christ is. There will be no doubting who the Son of God is because he's raised in power by the spirit of holiness, declared to be the Son of God. The resurrection is heaven's declaration that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God that he is who he said he was, that all his actions are revealed to be the actions of the God-man, of the Messiah. You see, the resurrection, friends, is the utter vindication of his person, his character, his teaching, his work, and his righteousness. The resurrection is vindication. It shows him to be who he said he was. It's clear, friends. If death is the last and great enemy, we need to understand death could not hold Jesus, the righteous God-man. Death unable to hold righteousness in the grave. And the reality of his first coming is that it was subject to denial. It still is today. There will be a time when he comes again in his resurrected body when no one will deny who Jesus Christ is. And that's a great warning to anyone here today who doesn't know and love Jesus Christ. If you're without Christ by saving faith this day, you're a denier of that which is true. And we would tell you, repent, believe, receive Christ, receive the risen Christ, because he's coming again. And it'll be too late when he comes again and you see him for who he is. Receive him now, dear friend, we urge you, for the forgiveness of sins and of life. Friends, the resurrection of Christ is remarkable. 
The resurrection is God's grand acceptance of his work. It's God's own stamp of approval on his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. The resurrection is the father saying, son, you've completed the work I gave you on earth. That he lived the life of perfect righteousness and died the death which takes away the sins of his people. They put him in a grave, but he was raised to glory and to power and to everlasting rule and reign. This is Jesus, the son of God. And he will come again in power. He will come again in power to bring his own unto himself and to bring judgment on those who resist him. Friends, there is an assurance here for us, at least a fourfold assurance. We have this weekly reminder of the Lord's day. It doesn't end when you go out those doors. The Lord's day is the weekly reminder Jesus was raised from the grave. And so shall we be. Jesus was raised from the grave. Hallelujah, what a savior. This is our new day of worship. Also remind us we enter these doors, aren't we? And every day, Lord willing, that because of the resurrection of our Savior, the power of sin has been broken in us. In other words, we no longer need to live under dominion of the sins which ensnare you. You don't need to live under their dominion. And the resurrection reminds us also that we've been justified in the sight of God. We have a, a right relationship with God. That on that last day we will stand before him, not in our own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of the Christ, the one who has been vindicated by his resurrection. We yearn for that day, do we not, when he will return and raise us from the dead or bring us under himself. Until that time, dear friends, delight in your Savior. Delight in the risen, ascended, and glorified Savior. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we magnify you, and we praise you. Help us to rest more and more on the finished work of the Savior. Might understand, Lord God, the great work you have done for us in our lives. And therefore, Lord God, help us to flee from sin. As we name you, Lord God, may we delight in righteousness. May we hate sin in us and flee from it. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.